We're going to need a Bible, and we're going to need your hymnal again. And in your hymnal, turn to page 859, using the small numbers on the bottom of uh, the page. So, page 859 on your hymnal, using the small numbers in the bottom of your page. And as you turn there, uh, starting next Sunday, so next Sunday is uh, beginning of October, uh, we're going to do, to do what our usual Reformation Celebration Month, doing Sunday school. So we're going to have five lessons on um, five different characters in the Reformation, of the Reformation. This year we're going to do five women that were very uh, instrumental in the Reformation, and uh, we're going to be doing some that you've I would dare say all, of all five, I don't think you've heard of them before, and yet they're super influential in the Reformation. So starting next Sunday, um, and for the next five Sundays, that's what we're going to be doing uh, in Sunday school. And then the first week of November, we're going to start a series on um, apologetics, and uh, why we believe what we believe, and... uh, and so at first it's going to be to strengthen the faith of believers, and then we're going to talk about how to defend that faith and what the scriptures say concerning that starting the first week of November. So that's the plan for the next couple of months. If you look at uh, page 859 of your hymnal, page 859, that's, uh, you're going to find there in the, begin- in the top of the page, chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that member that our the Confession and the Catechisms are our um, the statement of what we believe. It's not an exhaustive statement, though if you look through the larger catechism, that's a very, very detailed document. But still, it's not a statement about everything, but it's a statement about the core doctrines uh, that we hold as a church. We don't require members to hold to every one of them, of these doctrines, we do require office holders to, re- to agree with the system of doctrines that's in the confession and then the larger and the shorter catechisms. If you look at chapter 19, the title is Of the Law of God. And remember, we just looked at chapter 1, which is of Holy Scripture. And the reason for that is that we are going through a series in the morning and afternoon services on Psalm 119. We should do, we should do our sixth and seventh sermons on Psalm 119 this morning and this afternoon, Lord willing. And it's, the Psalm 119 is all about the Word of God, so it made sense that alongside this, this uh, verse-by-verse exegetical sermon series that we look at systematic, systematically about what the Bible says concerning itself. So we look at chapter 1 of Holy Scriptures, and now we're going to look at chapter 19 of the Law of God. And if you just searched Psalm 119 for this expression, Law of God, you're going to find this all over. Uh, the psalm, so it makes sense that we look at it um, this morning as well, and hopefully we'll be able to finish um, this morning. At 10.25, the uh, children's classes are going to meet for root beer, so if that's what you want to do, you can go to the annex building, and then the two of you that stay, we're going to go to 10.40 here in, in this class. Uh, Grant, it's 10.25, not now, just wait. <laughs> um, of the law of God... 
No, a proper understanding of the law of God is essential in order to glorify God. You can't really glorify God apart from understanding what he says concerning himself and what he requires of us. Also, something that we don't usually think is that a proper understanding of the law of God is essential for a proper understanding of the gospel. There's no gospel without the law. And there's no proper understanding of the gospel without uh, the law of God. So it's important that we understand what the Bible teaches concerning the law of God and how it impacts our lives today. And I think this chapter is very helpful for, for us to see that. So if you have your hymnal open there, we're going to read paragraph 1 on the very top of page 859. Those of you that are not referring to your hymnal, I just assume that you have the chapter memorized. And we'll go from there. So paragraph one, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life unto the fulfilling and threatened death unto the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So this is before the fall. This is in the garden. And uh, here the confession says that God gave Adam a law and that he had to be obeyed perfectly and that Adam could do it. So this is what we hear, we see here in these first paragraph. And we see that in those first three chapters of Genesis, even before the fall, we see the presence of the law of God in, in the garden and that Adam being aware of it. But even besides that, remember... What Romans 2 says is that all of us naturally, that by nature, have the law of God written in our hearts. That our conscience, our, the, the, the main driving force of our conscience is the law of God. So Adam, as the first man, had that in him as well. So theologically, we see that there in Romans 2, that that's true. That Adam had the law of God in his heart. And yet we find evidences of that law in the first three chapters of, of Genesis. For example, in Genesis 1.28, Adam and Eve are told to have dominion over God's creation. What command do you think that, uh, that is evidence of? To have dominion over God's creation. All right, so but think of the Ten Commandments. And which commands of those do you think uh, that dominion over God's creation would be referred to? How does God reveal his name? Okay. Bible works. So in the Bible, that's special revelation. And through creation. So God's name is revealed in creation. So having dominion over creation is actually an expression of the third commandment. To not take the Lord's name in vain. We think that taking the Lord's name in vain means not using the word of God in, uh, in, in, as cussing or as just a, a regular speech. But it's, it's not just that. That's the, probably the least aspect of keeping the Lord's, not of taking the Lord's name. But preserving His word and managing His creation through which He is revealed is part of obeying the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain. And then if you look at 
Uh, again, in, in Genesis 1, 28, 2.23, we have commands to have a family. So what two commands are those re- related to? The command to have a husband, wife, and the command to be from old guy. What two commandments we have um, related to those? Adultery, so the fifth commandment. And then honor their, father, their parents, that's the seventh commandment. So here we have the sixth, third, fifth, and seventh so far. Then we have in chapter 2, verse 3 of Genesis, God there establishes the Sabbath. What commandment is that? The fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day. And, and just a note there, notice that is a creation ordinance, which means as long as there is creation, there is a command to keep the Sabbath day. Um, you, know, you can't just ignore that and decide that Sunday is just for you to do whatever you want, because God put this right there in the very beginning. And then we have in Genesis 3.8, fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. What two commandments are related to that of the ten? First and second. Do not have any other gods. Do not make images. So that those two commandments regulate fellowship with God. Then we have in, in Genesis 3.1, the idea of truth. And lie. What is the what commandment is that? Ninth commandment. And then in Genesis two fifteen, God gives the garden to Adam and Eve. Gives property to Adam and Eve. What commandment is that related to? Do not steal. The eighth commandment. So you can see here now. Oh, but pastor, those are not stated clearly. Yes, but the notion they represent. Was there? God did not have to spend time explaining Adam. So look, Adam, you're going to do this because in a few hundred years, a few couple thousand years, I'm going to give these commandments more expressly, and they're just going to be for a time, and the rest of the people don't have to follow it. But right now, in the garden, you just do it because I'm asking you to do it. That's not the Adam was aware of those things. So when God said to do them, you can see the relationship between God's law and even in the garden prior to to sin there. So the law of God from the time of creation on was written in man's heart and also publicly displayed in the interaction of God with our first parents in Adam and Eve. Any questions on that? Nick? Wouldn't that last one also be the Ten Commandments? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of the Ten Commandments, they're actually circular in that the Tenth is a first as well, right? Because you, to covet is to, des, to desire something to the point that you're willing to sin, which means that that something becomes God, which is a God in place of the real God. So here we have the connection between the, the tenth and the first commandments there. They all work together. And that's why James says you break one, because they're so related, you break all, all of them. Any other questions before I continue? All right, and see, this first chapter also says that it was given, this law was given to Adam by way of covenant. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because a few months ago we talked about, uh, Isaiah talk, taught a lesson on the covenant of works. And uh, 
that, that's what God did. God entered into the covenant with Adam. Remember, just to briefly review the covenant of works, a covenant, you have parties, the people involved, and here you have God and Adam as a representative of all humanity. We see that in, in Romans 5. They was, he represented everybody, all of us in that. You have promises, life, which that promise of life is implied in the promise of death. If you eat of the fruit, you have the curse. If you eat of the fruit, you die. And um, we, the, the, so they have penalty of a condition, don't eat, obey. And we have all parts of a covenant there. And the law is given to Adam then by way of covenant. It's interesting that even in Hosea chapter 6, uh, the prophet, uh, God speaking to the prophet says, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, it, it says clearly, since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead, relating to Adam, for in Adam all die, and so on. So God entered in covenant, and, and that covenant was shown in the giving of the law to Adam. And as the, the, the paragraph continues, you see that that law given to Adam in the garden, was biting to, on him and also on all his posterity, that he represented everybody else that follow. Every human being has the duty to obey this law, the moral law of God, including Jesus. Every human being, not just Christians, every human being, if you're a human, you're represented by Adam, and you have the duty to obey this law given to uh, humanity in the moral law of God, and that even includes Jesus. And Jesus said so much in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to, to throw away the law, to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he himself was, as Galatians 4 says, was made under the law, and he lived under the law in obedience to the law of, of God. Any questions on that? that? That law is binding on everyone. Yes, Sonia. So are we to expect that our unbelieving friends are also supposed to obey? That's correct. They are, that is, they are, it's binding on them as well. It's binding on every last person. And that's why, you know, some people say, oh, we shouldn't legislate morality. Well, why make laws about abortion? We should, abortion should, we, we should actually just work on changing people's hearts and proclaiming the gospel, and then there will be no demand. That's true as well, but when an unbeliever breaks God's law, the more they break God's law, the more they are liable for God's judgment. And out of love for those that are not believers, we don't want them to do that. We want them to, even if from exterior enforcement, be compliant to God's law so that they may not suffer judgment in hell because um, we love humanity and we want what's best for humanity. And those that are enlightened by the Spirit and understand the Word understand God's plan for humanity. Emmy? Um, so with the whole we love humanity and stuff like that, um, how are we going to recruit new believers and spread the love of God if all we do is take away rights and Right, so, and that's the thing. It, is there a right to kill people, innocent people? And the idea is, and the answer has to be no. I mean, every culture in the world would express that. That's, that's one of those universals that transcends everything that is not a right to take away the life 
of another person unjustly. Uh, our Constitution actually says that, right? There's some inalienable rights that are rights that cannot be taken by other people. One of them is life. So it's, it's not taking away rights, but actually doing what God says it should be done. Renee. Mm -hmm. That's correct. If you look at, remember Jesus, he is carrying over, I think it's Bethsaida, I can't remember exactly what city, but it says that if the same, oh, oh, Chorazim, right? And then it says, if the same things had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Same things that you've witnessed had been done in Salma Gomorrah, but because you haven't, you're going to be in a, wor you're in a worse condition than, um, than Sodom and Gomorrah. So there, and then um, Jesus speaks of having a, a, a place of judgment, of punishment reserved for Satan and his angels. So there's this. So Dante was, Dante had a, 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 a little bit of common grace knowledge there when he talks about the different levels of hell. He may have been misinformed of what each level was because we don't know, but there's this idea that more unrighteousness, more judgment. Okay. Adam. The law applies to non-believers specifically because they're not part of the new covenant? No, it applies to everyone, believers and non-believers, because they're humans. Is a human institution. It's a divine institution given to every human. You and I are also under the law of God that we might get there um, as believers as well. Not as a justifying law, but as, as the way that we discern what God wants us to do in obedience to Him. Any other questions? All right, so it continues. Um, by saying that the obedience is very precise. If you look at there at paragraph one, it says it's personal. So every human being, nobody can obey for them. As far as the, the Ten Commandments, it has to be a personal obedience. No other regular human being can obey for them. And that's important that we talk about the regular human being, because Jesus um, talked about it in the moment. It's entire, so we don't get to choose which part of the Ten Commandments. I like this one. You know, like most of the church, including a lot of us here, think that the Fourth Commandment is not for us. Yeah, it's not for me. I'm gonna, nine is good enough. Going to throw the Sabbath out. Now, the Confession says it's entire. And then also says exact. So exactly how God said. And perpetual. So it's for forever there. And remember, James says, if you break one point, you're guilty of all. And it says that, that um, life was given for fulfillment of the law and death for breaking it. So we have this, if you fulfill the law, there is life. If you break it, there is uh, death. And the, here the confession um, hints at a probationary period, that there would be a point in which Adam would have fulfilled the covenant of works, and that he would go immediately from that, that state of creation to eternity. 
that would be an immediate jump there that uh, he would fulfill the covenant and then would be uh, able to live forever in the state of not being able to sin there. And then it ends by saying that Adam had the power and ability to keep the law. As a, we t- sometimes we take to think of Adam being created neutral, and then, no, he could go this way or he could go this way. No, he was created righteous. He had inherent, we don't have inherent righteousness. We don't, we don't have righteousness our own. Adam did. He was created as a righteous uh, person and took work for him to fall. He, he, he had to work hard at sinning against God, God and he was, able, he was in, capable of keeping the law of God uh, perfectly. Classically, um, I th- Augustine came with these categories. Adam was in a state of able to sin and able not to sin. Um, and some Latin words I use for that, but that's where Adam was, and he was able to sin, but also able not to sin and inclined to not sinning. Any questions on that? Jordan. No, Jesus was not able to sin. Okay? Now, there is a lot of debate on that statement, but just accept it right now, because we don't have about 15 hours to, to talk about, about that. But um, Adam was in the same category as a believer is today. Because a believer today is able to sin and able not to sin. Right? Do you understand that? And, and sometimes we discount that. We, we tend to think that, oh, we are just sinners, and we can't help but sin. But that's not how the Bible describes the believer in Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible describes the believer in Jesus Christ as indwelt by the Spirit, able to obey what God tells us to do. So we're back in that state, as it were. You know, now, Adam had positive righteousness of his own, and we don't. We have imputed righteousness by Jesus Christ. But through sanctification, we also... Um, we also become righteous. Okay? All right. The eternal state, Jordan, what will be at the resurrection, that's what, the, the, uh, that's what Jesus is. Okay? Because there will be a state of not being able to sin. Right? Okay. Any other questions on that? All right. So then paragraph two. It tells us that after the fall, the moral law continued to be the standard for all humanity and then was codified in the Ten Commandments. Look at paragraph 2. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty towards man. Now, we tend to think that that was the first time that anybody heard about the Ten Commandments. It was there at Sinai. Now, I've already showed that Adam was aware of them in the garden. And then you can look at the book of Job. He was aware that you're not supposed to have any other gods but the God of the Bible. He would do sacrifice for his kids just in case they sinned. Remember that in chapter 1. We can see elements of worship throughout the, the, the Bible before Exodus 20 where the law was codified. So the law is present everywhere. Now it was codified so that we have in one place in the ten words. Uh, that's how it's referred to in, in, in Hebrew, the ten words 
And, um, and now that's where the, the, the Greek word decalogue, the ten words, come from as a reference to uh, the ten commandments. <clears throat> so God has required everyone since the fall to keep this moral law. Now, for those that are in Jesus, it's not a keeping unto salvation, for Jesus has kept it for us. And that's what Romans 6.14 says. Remember, it says that we're not under law, but under grace. And people say, see, the law is gone. No, if you actually read the passage, talking about how we're justified before God, we're not justified by obedience to the law, we're justified by Christ's obedience to the law. If you're an unbeliever, your justification is by the law, meaning that's how you're going to be judged. That's not true of the believer. He's going to be judged by Christ's keeping of law. So that's how, what it means to not be under law but being under grace. But if you just go back, past, so that's Romans 6, 14. We're not under law but under grace. But then you look at 15, 6, 15, 6, 17 and on. Paul goes out of his way to say, but you as a believer now, as you are sanctified, as, as a sanctifying measure, you keep on obeying the law of God. Romans 7 says, I want to obey the law of God, and I don't, and that is a problem, right? Paul doesn't say, I want to obey the law of God, but I don't, how thankful I am that I don't have to do that anymore. That's not the conclusion of Romans 7. Are you with me on that? So the law is still binding on the believer, the moral law, not just on, not, but not unto justification. But we're still bound to keep it because that's how we grow to be uh, like glory Jesus Christ. So the Ten Commandments, the moral law, in our, in our confession are, are synonymous. So Ten Commandments, moral law, in the confession, talking about the same, same thing here. And let's go to Phyta Sinai. It says that into two tablets. In the time of the confession, there's a great belief that in one tablet, now I don't know if you've seen paintings. So in one tablet, Jesus has, the, oh, not Jesus, Moses has these two book-looking, book or more like tombstone-looking you know, things that are connected in one, you said one through four, and the other one, one through six. The first table of the law, that's what refers to the first stone being concerning our relationship with God. The second table of the law, the second stone referring to our relationship with each other. And it's, it's, it's uh, proper to divide the commandments that way, but it's likely that uh, when it says that uh, Moses had two stones, there's two copies of all ten. One to be kept in the ark, to remind, as it were, God, and one to be kept before the people. So the two parties in the covenant uh, there. We have these two divisions, and then the first four commandments are summarized by Jesus as what? Love the Lord your God with every ounce of your being, right? With your, your mind, your heart, your strength, and your soul. And then the last six commandments from um, fifth through tenth summarizes, is summarized by Jesus like what? Love your neighbor yourself, and then for the believer, there's a different standard. Love your love, love your brethren as I have loved you. So there's a higher standard for that in the Church of, of Jesus Christ. All right, questions? Yes. We can obey God's law. Yes. In some ways, theologically, because that's where we're moving, right? We're moving to perfection. We do admit that that's never going to be accomplished. The difference between us and the holiness church is that they believe it can be accomplished apart from the coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't believe that. But our trajectory is to perfection. And for every 
time that we're faced with the possibility of sinning, we truly have the option of not sinning. We know that overall we'll fall, but every time we fall, it's not because somehow God failed us, it's because we chose to sin. That's why 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that you're never tempted to struggle with something that you can't bear. And even then, God will give you a way of escape if we rely on Him. So, because of the leftovers of our sinful nature, even though we have been changed, that struggle is still, still there. But every moment we're faced with sin, we have the ability by the Spirit of God to resist, and often we, change, we choose not to. No, believe it be, that in this life, like tomorrow, the need can be 100% sinless for the rest of her life. But isn't that kind of what you're saying? That we can't, we just, we can't but we won't? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, we can, but we won't. That's the way to put it. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Now, I don't know if you know that, but Roman Catholic has a different Ten Commandments, and the Lutherans have different Ten Commandments than we have. So the, the Roman Catholic Lutherans, their second commandment is do not take the Lord's name in vain. Because they combine the first two. The first one in our list is do not have any other gods besides me. The second one in our list is don't make any images. The Lutherans and the Roman Catholic says, no, 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 that is just an explanation of the first commandment. Don't make any images of other gods. And if it's images that to be used to worship the true God, then it's okay. So the second commandment is not the second commandment. But the problem is the Bible everywhere says 10, so they had to figure out how to do 10. And so what they do is that they divide the 10th commandment into two. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. That's the ninth commandment. Don't cover your neighbor's everything else. That's the 10th commandment. And then they ran into another problem because that order is not the same in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which is the two lists of the Ten Commandments. So they had to decide which one was the official list. And they decided that Exodus 20 is the official list. Deuteronomy 5, 10, 5 is not the official list of the Ten Commandments because they, the 10th commandment is listed in a different order um, there. So that's how they come, got around that there. But the Bible is the same, right? Correct, and that's the same. In Exodus 20, it would say, you shall not have done for me. Go ahead and go to the ninth commandment, uh, the tenth commandment. Yeah. Can you read it for me? You shall not cover your neighbor's house. Okay. You shall. Oh, so you, do they just put the par- Does their Bible actually put the paragraph in a different place? Yes. They, they, the, the commands one and two is the same paragraph. Ah. Commands, commandment ten, commandment ten is split into two paragraphs. And if Exodus says the house first, then Deuteronomy five is the official list. What's their version of the Bible? Then? They use, it's not a problem with their version of the Bible. It's a problem with their theology that dictates how they're going to divide the Ten Commandments. So the Bible reads the same. Correct. Oh, yes. It has the, the breaks in the same place. The it could have, oh. but because they have a, a theological reason to print otherwise, oh. they're, they're separated in that way. Okay. Remember that there's no paragraphs of punctuation in the original language. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. So, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. All right. Any other questions on that? All right, paragraph 3 says, Beside this law, commonly called moral, God has pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances partly of worship, 
prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Abrogated means done away with, fulfilled, no longer valid for us. So what is it saying? saying that we have the Ten Commandments, but to help the people of God to understand the Ten Commandments, to understand that there's a Messiah coming, God gave these other laws that, that are called ceremonial laws to help God's people see that their need for a Messiah and that he was coming. So these were pictures, or as the book of Hebrew calls them, they were shadows of the things to come. They were, they were prefiguring, they were drawings, as it were, made of crayons, of the coming of Christ. And once he came, there's no reason for the drawings anymore. There's no reason for the things that were preparing people to come for, for the coming of the Messiah. Those are done away because they've done what they needed to do. Uh, Galatians says, uses the, the word schoolmasters in two different ways, in two different passages. One is that the law was a schoolmaster, the ceremonial law was a schoolmaster, schoolmaster trained God's people for the coming of Christ to lead to the fullness of time. And when that happens, then its function is done. And then the moral law is also called a schoolmaster to lead anyone to Christ as well um, today. So those uh, ceremonial laws were set aside um, by the work of Christ. In, in Colossians chapter 2, 16 and 17, Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, so special Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. They are shadow. But the substance is of Christ. Christ is the core. Christ is the substance. They are pointing to them. They're just a shadow. We don't look at the shadow when you have the real thing here. The shadow is not needed anymore. So that has been abrogated. And if you have any doubt, you can look at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the whole thing, is the arguments to show, look, we have a better mediator. We have a better high priest. We have a better Savior in Christ. And he came and fulfilled all these ceremonial laws. And that's why we don't sacrifice animals, because Christ, that, those are the sacrifices that point to Christ. And that's why we don't, um, that's why we, we, um, we're okay with wearing mixed fabric. Right? One of the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament is that you're not supposed to wear mixed fabrics. So not linen and cotton. It had to be one or the other. The only thing we believe is that you should not wear polyester. But that's not because of the ceremonial, the ceremonial uh, law. Uh, and, and that was to signify the holiness of God's people looking into the Messiah. Now we're made holy in Christ. We don't need those exterior uh, signs of holiness because our holiness is in, in Christ. So he has fulfilled. And so people say, oh, you obey the Bible? I don't see you wearing just one single fabric. Well, yeah, because you don't understand what the Bible says. So there's... That, that shows somebody's ignorance to the Bible, not some powerful argument against the faith. Because the Bible says all those laws are there to point to Christ. Once he came to be seen by all, we don't need those anymore. We have the real deal, the real thing here. Any questions on that? And the dietary laws you know, goes along with that. Uh, Jesus expressly marks that, uh, Mark himself expressly, Back up. The Holy Spirit through Mark expressly said that when Jesus said, you don't have to wash your hands, just eat, that was, was what goes 
out of man that corrupts him, not what goes into man, and says that Mark was a comment. And by saying that, Jesus cleansed all foods. In Acts chapter 10, remember the vision of this thing, this sheet of, of unclean animals coming down, and God says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh, no, God, I'm more righteous than you are, and I'm not going to do that. And God said, Peter, don't call unclean what I've made clean. Get up, kill, and eat. Again, showing that. And when the Jerusalem Council met in Acts 15 to decide what are the things that the Gentile Christians should be aware of so they don't offend the Jewish sensitivities, the dietary laws were, they say, yeah, they better not have lobster because it might upset the Jews. No, that wasn't even... There, so that those laws of purity and separation have been abrogated in Christ too, because He is our purity. He is the one that sets us aside as our head in His church. Any questions on that, Tilly? If the, if there, it says that um, part, it divides the ceremonial laws into two sections. Mm-hmm. Yes. For example, the test of a woman who's been accused of adultery, right? That's a moral thing, and they're going to have her eat a drink of the dirt of the floor. And so, no, we're not going to do that either. The different offerings of grain and so on and so on, those are moral duties, those being fulfilled in Christ's offering and so on. So those are two examples of those moral, moral duties. Any other questions? The next paragraph deals with the civil laws. So the given to the nation of Israel, if you look at paragraph 4, it says, To them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. The last clause, there's more books written about that than, uh, than the whole confession uh, put together. So it's uh, uh, nobody can really define super close what the general equity um, thereof may require because it's sub- such a subjective uh, thing. So uh, what they're saying by that is that there are civil laws given to Israel that show how men, people should relate to people, then we should use that as the basis for our law. That's what the general equity. Of it is, but the problem is that how we define exactly what those are, so it becomes a little subjective. But the confession is definitely against something called theonomy. You cannot be a theonomist and subscribe to the confession at the same time. Theonomy, theonomist is a theonomy is that theology that teaches that doctrine teaches that one of the goals of the Christian is to establish the Old Testament civil laws in today's culture. So whatever had the penalty of death in the New Testament should have the penalty of death today and so on. And those civil laws should govern. And the confession teaches otherwise. Those are abrogated. And one way to see that is if you look at Romans 13, Paul clearly says the civil magistrate is in charge of certain things. And, in, in, and the church is in charge of other things. And, for example, homosexuality was a capital punishment by the state. Capital punishment has always been the state's job, the Old Testament, New Testament. And Paul doesn't say, you know what, you should try to, find, to, to figure out a death penalty for a homosexual who repents, right? No. 
call to repentance becomes the law of the church in that place, in that time. Um, so the only diff- the only capital punishment law that should remain is actually for murder, because that is a not a mosaic law. Is is a Noahic law, right, of the covenant with Noah. So as long as there's a flood, that is in in place. It's based on the image of God that men and women bear. Any questions on that? Nick? So R.C. Sproul seemed to believe there was maybe different levels of theonomy because he said everyone's a theonomist to a certain extent. Does that make sense? No. uh, Yes and no. Uh, because the doctrine of theonomy means, by definition, to apply the civil law of the Old Testament to the civil magistrate today. Okay, that's what theonomy properly defined is. Now, we, do we all want to live according to the law of God? Yes. So, in that sense, if you want to use the word, because theonomy means law, God, law. That's what the word means. If you're going to break it at the etymology of the word. If that's all you mean, that all of us should be theonomists. But theonomy as a doctrine is different, is what I define. Does it make sense? Yes. Yeah? Okay. So all of us should love the law of God and want it to live, so in that way, yes. But not in a technical sense. So, so between three and four here, is it basically saying that anything besides the Ten Commandments is not binding on... In some ways, yes. But the thing is that these are somewhat artificial categories because you're going to have morality in the ceremonial law, right? You're going to have some things that uh, you do that because it's morally right and so on. So it's very difficult to just neatly get the Old Testament and split into all these different laws. But in essence, everything that was done for atonement, everything was done for purity, Every, everything was done to signify um, uh, the distinction between Israel and other nations, those are, that's I, I gone. I see those more easily almost than the judicial ones, which are yeah. not deal with the civil, which right. is like, you know, when an alien lives among you and you're loved, you know this treat and treat him like one of your own, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, the difficulty with the civil law is just to know how much, right. what and how much and so on. So in some ways, the theonomist is way more consistent. He said, I'm not going to pick it. I'm just going to take the whole thing. Right? And that's why that, that clause is so troubling to try to figure out exactly what is the general equity thereof, you know, who decides the equity, and, and so on. Uh, uh, Mike, a good example of uh, civil laws is uh, chapters 21 and 22 of Exodus, if you want to look at it later. All right, so we're still missing paragraph 5 and paragraph 6. Uh, 6 being the longest one of the paragraphs, and then paragraph 7. I encourage you to look at it. Um, um, 6 and 7 tells us that the obedience to the moral law is not being under law as Paul talks about being under law. Obedience to law is what God calls us to do as Christians, not to be justified, but to grow in obedience in, in God, we follow what he says in the Ten Commandments. We just don't disregard it. And a, a, a very important hermeneutical principle, principle of interpretation is this. 
uh, be, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, the, it became very famous to say that unless God says it in New Testament, it's not for the church. That's a bad principle of interpretation. The better principle is to say, unless God has said to his people that they should stop believing in that, they should just go ahead and continue. So instead of requiring God to say it twice before it's true, true once, we, we say, if God said it once, we're going to keep on following until he says we're not supposed to do it anymore. So unless God says in the New Testament that some Old Testament thing is not for us anymore, we just keep on uh, believing and doing uh, that. With the ceremonial law, he clearly says that's gone. No more sacrifices, no more priesthood, and so on, so we've stopped doing that. All right? We're out of time. We're not going to cover chapters 6 and 7. You guys can read it at home. Um, when we come again for not Reformation class, then we're going to be talking about apologetics. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you clearly display in your word what you expect of us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he obeyed you perfectly, that we might have life in him. Help us to love your law. Help us to hide in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And we pray that you would, even as we worship you, that you enable us to be able to do it in righteousness. And that you would be pleased to bless us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.